Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 22nd, 2021. This is episode 2811 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for a listener, uh, I'm sorry, an expert counsel Q&A show. Uh, we have a great lineup today, a really diverse uh, group of topics, and we will hear from some expert council members we haven't heard from in a while, and some that are uh, kind of steady eddies that are always here just about every week. Uh, we have from Derek Bonpietro, protecting your catalytic converter from being stolen, and why would somebody do that? Well, it has to do with precious metals, and we'll talk about that. Making maple syrup with Ben Falk, is it really worth doing? It depends. How Keto Impacts Pregnancy and Breastfeeding from Dr. Ken Berry. A couple of battery-based questions for Sean Mills. What to be doing as a beekeeper in January? Thoughts for new beekeepers and more from Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer. Tim, the Toolman Cook, will talk about developing revenue with property management retainer services. And I'll throw a little idea in there based on my experience with people who charged me a retainer fee and how it worked and how, as a customer, I was okay with it when it worked this way. Backpacking your toddler, literally, with Jessica Mills. Not backpacking with your toddler. Backpacking your toddler. Toddler in the backpack. From Jessica Mills. And why we should not overthink companion planning and instead just do it for me, myself, and I, Jack. Before we get into that, though, let's start out today with a quote of the day. And uh, with all the talk of it's, you know, insurrection, insurrection is, is the, the, the term that's being used for the capital riots, which were, man, if that's a riot, what, what, what did we have all summer long then, if that was a riot? Uh, I'm not saying that nobody was wrong there. I'm not saying that violence didn't happen. I'm not saying it shouldn't have happened, right? I'm just saying if that's riots with an S, right, and it's sedition and insurrection, what is burning down 50 cities over the summer? What is that? Anyway. When it comes to insurrection, we have been taught that insurrection is a bad word. Um, you might think that a guy that co-wrote a song called The Revolution Is You may not feel the same way, and I don't. I actually prefer the term insurrection over the term revolution. I've often said that a revolution is where the people fight and shed blood and die. And they do so to change the leadership from one group of rulers to another group of rulers. When you're really in the world of insurrection, it's where, it's where people seize power. It's not about picking a new ruler that has a new way of things and does things the way that you want. You know, Revolutions are what you, what you get communism from. Insurrection is what you get freedom from. And the United States, when it was formed, we often term it as the American Revolution. I don't really think it's the right term. I think it was the American insurrection, but of course we had to vilify the word insurrection. But somebody that was part of that little battle, that little war, who uh, helped to make it so that the U.S. came out to be the United States, or these states united, as they were called at the time, who wasn't from here. The Marquis de Lafayette, right? As in Lafayette, we are here? Like that guy? Yeah. Um, he said of insurrection... Insurrection 
is the most sacred of rights and the most indispensable of duties. That at a time when people are oppressed by the state, they have a sacred right to commit acts of insurrection. And it's a duty that is indispensable. I mean, really let that fully come home to you. Insurrection is the most sacred of rights and the most indispensable of duties. Later in his life, Lafayette became a huge proponent of the concept of a constitutional monarchy. Constitutional monarchy. When you hear constitutional monarchy, you're like, oh boy, we're back to the king being in charge of everything. No, constitutional monarchy will have a monarch that exists as the head of state, but most of the power lies in the legislature. It's like having a king for a president, sort of, kind of, not really, because it depends. There are constitutional monarchies where the monarch has extensive power, as much as a U.S. president would have, let's say. There are constitutional monarchies where the president has, or the king has, or monarch could be queen, significantly limited powers. As in, there are some things they can do, but they have nowhere near the authority um, that a president would have in a constitutional republic or most constitutional republics. Uh, quite often, there's a, a a sharing of responsibility between them and ministers, like a prime minister or other ministers. And then there are constitutional monarchies where the constitutional monarch has almost no authority or power whatsoever. They're a figurehead. That's kind of how UK works today, mostly. I would say that the royal family has a little more power than they let on, but for all intents and purposes, it's that way. Now, why would a guy who felt that insurrection was the most sacred of rights and the most indispensable of duties become a fan of a monarchy? And I don't think it was really so much that it was a monarchy. It was a system of government understood, but it allowed for peaceful insurrection. That's the belief that democracy can bring us when it's restrained by a republic or a constitution, that thereby we can have a revolution or insurrection without bloodshed. Because if there's enough people that decide they want things differently, there's a means to get there. So I ask you what happens when that no longer works. And I don't think it's worked for a very long time, despite all the shit that went on in 2020 that I'll, I'm not going to get into today. Okay? I, and I agree. If you ask me, do I feel that Joe Biden, under our system, because none of them are legitimate to me, right? So under our system, if, if you want me to come into your world of elections and all this stuff and, and play in your world, is Joe Biden a legitimate president of the United States today? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In no way, shape, or form is his presidency legitimate. I believe that there, there was sufficient voter fraud that because it was not properly investigated or taken seriously and buried and kicked under the rug, that he's not a legitimate president, even under the system that I find illegitimate, right? Because I'm not, I'm not even saying that had that been done that he wouldn't still be president. The, the answer is we don't know. We don't know how many votes were stolen. We don't know how many votes were fake because nobody took any of it seriously. And that delegitimizes the entire election. But we've seen complete swings in power. I'm 50-ish years old. I've seen split governments where the legislature is completely in the hands of Democrats and the presidency of the Republicans. 
I've seen it flipped the other way. I've seen it unified under Democrats and unified under Republicans. And I haven't seen any real change. All I've seen is a continuous, ongoing march toward a larger, more powerful state with less freedom for individuals. So what happens when you've placed your faith that we can make insurrection possible through election and people realize it's not true? And insurrection ends up being the most sacred of rights and the most indispensable of duties. You're going to get other forms of insurrection. That's the answer. I don't care if you like it. That's the answer. You're going to get other forms of insurrection. And not all insurrections are violent. Gandhi's mar march to the sea was not a revolution. It was an insurrection. It was direct defiance to the state in such a way that the state cracking down on it, because it, for those that don't know, it was about salt. The British government said to its colony India, Thou Indians shall not make their own salt from the sea. You will buy the British salt that will be taxed. Sound familiar? Tea? Anyone? And eventually realizing that the ability to dry seawater and make salt was something that if anything was an intrinsic right of an individual, that would be that. Gandhi decided to make salt. But he did not go to the beach and say, hey, I'm going to make some salt. Put his sandals on and started a march, a very long march to the sea, announcing, I'm going there to make salt. And he led an insurrection. We are at a point today where it is time for us to start thinking creatively about our various forms of insurrection. I, I really believe that. I'm going to save my further thoughts on it for when we get to our song of the day, which is going to seem completely unrelated until I explain to you exactly how related it is. With that, let's go ahead and dig into our uh, topics today, starting out with Derek Bonpietro, how to protect your catalytic converter from being stolen off your vehicle, and it does happen. Hey, TSP listeners, Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got a automotive question up from Sam. Let's dig in. Is there a device or method to protect a catalytic converter from being cut out and removed by thieves? I've been hearing and reading about an increase in catalytic converter theft in my city after a short look online. The only cat protector I saw was for a Prius. We have a 2019 Honda CRV, and we'd like to keep all the parts on it for now. One thought I had was to wrap the upstream and downstream exhaust pipes with the metallic mesh that is often seen wrapped on motorcycle pipes, or potentially using a half-inch galvanized gopher netting, Loosely, but in a similar fashion, may just move around under a saw blade. Any thoughts or suggestions would be appreciated, Sam. All right, let's talk about what a catalytic converter is and why they are so valuable. The catalytic converter in a car dates back to probably the late 70s, early 80s, when really the auto manufacturers started to get the big push from the EPA to lower emissions. And so this is a component which kind of looks like a miniature muffler that's in the exhaust pipe, Usually close to the engine on an older car, you might see it kind of in the middle before the muffler. And so inside this catalytic converter, there is a ceramic honeycomb. And on this honeycomb made of ceramic is a wash coat of platinum, palladium, and rhodium. These precious metals are on a very, very thin material. And when the exhaust gas is hot and passes over these, they are catalyzed to change their molecular structure from dangerous emissions into what's basically carbon dioxide and water vapor. 
And so this is obviously going to help the environment, and that's why we've been doing this for many decades. Now, when we're talking old cars, 80s, and maybe even the early 90s before we got to 1996, catalytic converters were pretty basic stuff. And now you can buy universal ones that are 50 to to $100, and they're fairly, you know, weld in. They don't fit a specific car. They're very universal, and they're cheap. Once we get past 96, we start to get into heavier emissions, more expensive catalytic converters. We start to move into vehicles that are like partial zero emissions, and we're going to see little catalytic converters move up onto the exhaust manifolds in the engine bay. So that's kind of a pre-cat, which is there for cold startup emissions. And then we got a primary catalytic converter, and you might find that down below. So we start splitting these up, and when we get into hybrid vehicles, you might see like three catalytic converters in a row. When we're talking diesel pickup trucks into the... Um, 2011, 12, 13, and on, where that DEF fluid started to take place. We're talking like, you know, table-sized catalytic converters jammed under there, and those are getting really expensive. Those precious metals are what the thieves are after. They're cutting the cats out, they're trading them in the scrapyards because these precious metals are trading, you know, above gold prices. Now, obviously, it takes a lot of catalytic converters to get those precious metals, but that's why they're chasing after those catalytic converters. Now, what can you do? There's some Passive ways to protect your catalytic converter, and then there's some more active ways. Passive waves, I think, are probably more obvious. Parking in a well-lit area, parking on a good street, parking somewhere where somebody's not going to slide underneath there and cut the thing out. Now, you've got an SUV, probably a lot easier getting under there than, say, maybe like a Honda Civic. So the CRV, you can physically get under, and you can get a tool up under there. With the invention of the cordless Sawzalls and angle grinders, you know, anything's fair game. Locks are basically keeping the honest people honest. I have a storage unit where I keep my trucks, and I get a good laugh when I see people that have double locks and covers on top of the locks, and I'm just sitting there like, yeah, that was just going to add like five seconds to my 20-volt DeWalt uh, Sawzall or angle grinder. Great, you've added five seconds of extra work. You know, it's, it's all boiling down to a padlock at the end of the day. With these protective devices, they're really not going to stop people. It's just going to maybe make somebody pass and go to the next car that's a little easier, which is great because it saves your vehicle. Knowing where we park a car in a safe area is great. If you need that little extra protection, there are some covers, some metal covers that are vehicle specific, and those are like in the two to $300 range. There's some pretty universal covers that are just basically like keeping somebody from cutting in there. So they don't like cover the whole underside of the vehicle. It's just kind of like a strip that you put down the middle of the pipe. I don't know how effective that is, and those are in the $100, $200 range. Some of those also have a wire that is a audible alarm. But, you know, when was the last time you saw a car with an alarm going off and actually cared? Maybe in, like, 1993, if you had that nice BMW that was going off, you actually would call the cops. But, like, this is 2021. When somebody sees a car with the lights flashing, the horn honking, does anybody call the cops anymore? So I don't know how effective those devices are. So to give you an idea of what the catalytic converter costs on your 2019 Honda Civic... An aftermarket upstream cat, which is basically like the exhaust manifold catalytic converter combo, you're looking at like 350 bucks. Now, I would assume that if that's a genuine Honda part, it's probably going to be like double to triple that. That's kind of the price point, and then you're looking at maybe two to three hours of labor to replace that. You know, maybe $1,000 to $1,500 in a repair bill if somebody were to cut one of those out. Not the end of the world. You know, it's not like this stuff is unavailable or discontinued or intergalactic back order where you can't get it. Here's the worst case scenario. Somebody cuts your cat out, 
you're inconvenienced by it. Your insurance company is going to cover it. So you're going to be down a vehicle. You might be lucky and be able to get a rental car. So you're not put out without a ride. And you're going to pay the deductible. Whatever that is, a couple hundred dollars or zero if you're lucky. So I think realistically all these products are protecting you from the inconvenience. That's basically it. I don't think anybody that's going to have full coverage on a newer vehicle, there's really not much to worry about here because you're insured. That's the whole point of having the insurance. I would think if you had an older vehicle and you had liability only, you're paying out of pocket to repair this. But realistically, you're going to pay $300 to protect a $50 to $100 catalytic converter on an older car. I don't think that makes great financial sense. Realistically, there's way more important things to be worried about than the catalytic converter on your car. Now, if you have a diesel late model truck that has the really large catalytic converters and particulate filters, these are getting pricey. You're talking about two to $3,000 for the cat or the particulate filter, and there are two different ones typically on the trucks. Those are big money. So maybe if I had something like that, I'd maybe consider putting some kind of protective device on it. But other than that, I think your best bet's gonna be the passive anti-theft. Should be all set. The other thing here is that you're talking about putting like some type of mesh or other material on top of the catalytic converter to prevent theft. And you're talking about a 2019 Honda CRV, which is by all means like a new car. It's quiet, it's comfortable. And now you're talking about putting some kind of like rebar or protective cover over this and you potentially could get rattles and wind noise or shuddering while it's going down the road because it's not engineered to be in there you're kind of just like screwing it in or zip tying it in or wire tying it or something like that and i think potentially you could create some noise or vibration the other side of this is that your vehicle's still under warranty and you're probably taking it to the dealership and I think if somewhere to lift, somebody was going to lift the vehicle up and look at that, if you had another kind of problem, uh, they might not like that and try to void your warranty or complain that that's on there. So those dealership people can be pesky too. So I, that's why I would avoid that as well. Well, Sam, I hope that answers your question. I hope you don't lose too much sleep about this overnight. After all, that's why we pay the insurance companies. I've got a question up next week on diesel trucks. If you guys have any other questions, automotive related, generator related, send them on over. Love to answer them. Take care, guys. I'm just going to say, if you're driving a Honda Civic, you probably don't have to worry about somebody stealing your catalytic converter. If the brand new one costs 350 bucks, um, there's just not that much in it. The other thing is, if you tried to climb underneath a Honda Civic or any other puddle jumper cars, I call them all puddle jumpers, it's not easy. The vehicles most at risk are the vehicles, see, criminals look for quick, easy hits, Right? So your jacked-up vehicles, your pickup trucks, etc., the stuff that's high enough off the ground to gain access quickly in and out, that's really where uh, they get hit. And, you know, I said when this came on, it happens. It does happen. It is not anywhere near as common as people tend to think. I will say I think that if your vehicle has an alarm system with the horn blowing or whatever, um, it probably would be effective against this type of theft. Not because somebody's going to call the cops, but I can tell you, um, if you're a mechanic and you're under a vehicle like on a creeper or something working, because I was a mechanic in the Army, and some jackass gets in there and blows the horn, it is, it freaks you out. If you're stealing something and you're already predisposed to being a little bit paranoid, because you need to be, and the horn starts going, nah, 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 nah. I, I guarantee it will ruin your day. <laughs> You're probably going to bust your skull sitting up. So I'll just say I don't think it's completely useless, though I do agree. I think today the way people view car alarms, you could be driving 
down the road with the with, you know that white shoe polish that people put stuff on windows. Well, the thing that says, I stole this car, my name is, and my phone number is, right? With your picture taped to the freaking trunk and the horn blowing and, and, and going off. And you could drive past a cop and he'd probably think, what an idiot for not knowing how to turn off his alarm. I don't think they work for that. But they do work to let you know something's going on. And it is when a person's trying to steal stuff that takes a little bit of effort, um, a blaring horn is pretty disruptive. Anyway, with that, let's go and talk a little bit about making maple syrup and, and, and doing the calculations. Is it worth doing with Ben Falk? Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with the Expert Council on Whole Systems Design. First question about um, the maple syrup, maple sap evaporator. The photo that you sent of that evaporator setup looks good. That's really common around here as kind of a backyard setup a barrel cut in half with a stainless evaporator, pretty typical. Or you could use one or two or three casserole or like catering pans. Those are sometimes cheap to come by because stainless is expensive usually. The big thing to keep in mind is, you know, a family typically needs like two to five gallons of maple syrup. That's a lot of work to make. I mean, it's 40 gallons of sap to evaporate for every gallon or so, depending sometimes more. So it's definitely a ton of work for what where I live. You can buy for still 50 bucks a gallon um, because people from people who make hundreds and hundreds of gallons of syrup. It's fun to make it if you're not super busy and it's not a very busy time of the year necessarily, um, mud season, beginning of mud season. But um I haven't. I found it's one of the least worthwhile things to do. I mean, I still do it for fun, um, and with my son and stuff, it's great. But it is a lot of work for what you're going to get, and you're burning a lot of wood to do that. Um, I typically have done it on my own wood cook stove while I'm already running the stove anyway, so it's not too much extra wood. And you got to open a bunch of windows high and low, so you get the moisture out. But that time of year, that's easy to do. It's kind of mild in March, usually. Um, just to throw that out there, I mean, a lot of people try to make their own. Most of those people stop pretty quickly, uh, is what I've seen, um, and just buy them from neighbors who, who make the syrup. But, um, yeah, no need for cob. I mean, I'm sure you could do something cool with cob, but no need. Rocket mass, also, I don't think it would be a great application for a syrup evaporator, a sap evaporator, because... A rock of mass heaters like intermittent. You're not running it 24/7, which is pretty much what you want to do to evaporate sap. So can't think of a good reason for that, unless it was co-located as like a co-generator with a greenhouse heat. If you could heat the soil and and then and also evaporate sap at the same time, there's a nice co-generative use there. Uh, multiple multiple functions that can make it really worthwhile too. I've always thought they should locate um, sugar houses, you know, co-locate them with greenhouses because that's when everyone's starting their seeds and you have a ton of waste heat when you're making maple syrup. That's pretty much what you're making is waste heat. And what is it, 66% sugar uh, sap syrup as well. So good luck. Thanks. So I'll just say that I think one of the least respected things about maples is just the sap as it is. 
Um, it's actually pretty refreshing. Now, it is kind of high in sugar. That's how we can make syrup out of it. But maple sap is a hell of a lot lower in sugar than, um, let's say, syrup is, right? And And when I was a kid... We had a couple big sugar maples in the backyard, and we never made syrup out of them. But I did, every year, tap them and get some sap and drink that, usually mixed, uh, one-to-one with water. It still has a pretty good amount of flavor and a hint of sweetness to it. Uh, it's I don't know much about the chemical structure of it, but my gut would be it would be fairly high in things like electrolytes. And uh, I've also used maple sap, not syrup, maple sap, in brewing uh, light ales. You can brew anything you want with it, okay? You can. However, if you brew something like a a British Brown or an IPA or an American Pale Ale or something like that uh, with a high amount of hops in it, you are going to completely overpower the very faint, nice component that comes from... The maple. If you go with something like a light blonde ale, something for you extract brewers, it would be in the neighborhood of about six to seven pounds of light or extra light malt extract, uh, a nice kind of fruity, uh, light bodied ale yeast, and a, a gentle hops like Fugles uh, at a low hop rate. Let the sweetness come through. It's pretty freaking outstanding. So even if you don't want to go through the full evaporation process, there's other ways to use that resource that are far less energy intensive. Just some thoughts on that. Uh, just remember, you're not going to get a ton of sweetness if you ferment this because you're, you're going to add malt and everything else. But the sugars that are in there are fermentable. So you're not going to get a huge amount. But you'll get a, ritual, a residual sweetness that's interesting. I'll just say that. I've never done a, 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 a mead with maple sap. I've done it with maple syrup. It's an interesting combination. I don't like it enough to do it again, but somebody else might. Uh, but maple sap has other uses. With that, let's take another one. This one, uh, we're going to talk to Dr. Ken Berry now about keto diets and how they affect pregnancy and breastfeeding and this is a really great question hey jack and the tsp crew this is dr ken berry family physician answering a listener's question today this question is from ray lynn ray lynn and her husband are planning on having a a second child and she would love to breastfeed for at least two years but she's got some weight to lose before she gets pregnant. She'd like to go keto, but she's heard some conflicting information about whether it's safe in pregnancy, safe in breastfeeding. Is there anything I need to watch out for, anything I need to be aware of to maintain supply? Excellent question, Raylynn. More and more women are considering a ketogenic or even a carnivore diet during uh, conception, during pregnancy, and during breastfeeding. I can tell you from the hundreds of women that uh, Nisha, my wife, and I have talked to who have had keto pregnancies or carnivore pregnancies and then also the subsequent breastfeeding, they do wonderfully. Uh, one thing you're not going to have to worry about at all with uh, doing eating keto or carnivore during your pregnancy is gestational diabetes. Gestational diabetes only happens if you're eating too many carbohydrates for your personal physiology. I, from, from the research I can read and from my experience with thousands of women doing keto and carnivore, 
the ketogenic diet or even a carnivore diet are 100% safe during pregnancy. There is no essential carbohydrate you need to get for you or the baby. There are no magical phytonutrients that have been shown to be necessary during pregnancy or breastfeeding. Uh, indeed, if we went back in time 50,000 years, every one of your grandmother's back then were eating either keto or carnivore, depending on the time of the year. Uh, and so if you're like many of us and your ancestors came from the northern latitudes during the winter, uh, if you were carrying a pregnancy then, you were eating 100% fatty meat. You were eating whale blubber, seal blubber, caribou, reindeer. That's literally all you had to eat during the winter. And obviously, all your grandmothers back then carried those pregnancies successfully, had a live child, and breastfed that child. Because if any single one of your grandmothers hadn't made it, then you wouldn't be here. And so the very fact that you are here today means that, that thousands of successful conceptions, pregnancies, births, and breastfeedings happened on a ketogenic and a carnivore diet. Almost everything that, that they tell you in the little handout that you get from your obstetrician or midwife about things to avoid, like avoiding seafood while you're pregnant, that's dumb. Obviously, if, if the seafood is ruined and stinks, then don't eat that. But if it's fresh seafood, there's no reason not to eat that. You actually need the iodine in that, and so does the developing fetus, and so does the baby. Make sure you watch my YouTube video about vitamin D-rich foods. Women who are low in vitamin D don't put vitamin D in their breast milk for their baby. And so young babies can actually develop rickets and osteomalacia because they're not getting any vitamin D from their mom. But if you'll make sure you're either, either eating or supplementing enough vitamin D so you're getting 6,000 units a day, then your breast milk will be rich with vitamin D and your baby will thrive on it. And that same thing goes for iodine. If you're deficient in iodine, then you're not giving your baby any iodine in your breast milk. And there's actually studies that show that, that uh, pregnancy and breastfeeding from low iodine moms can actually lower the IQ of the baby. So there are multiple things you can do to ensure that your baby's healthy, happy, has a high IQ, is very intelligent, smart, and funny, like Jack and I. But all of it involves eating ancestrally appropriate foods. So you have no need for any sugar at all in your diet. You have no need for any grains at all in your diet. I would highly recommend you avoid vegetable seed oils religiously during conception, pregnancy, childbirth, and breastfeeding because neither you nor your future baby need any vegetable oils whatsoever. And eat the foods that human beings have been eating for hundreds of thousands of years and avoid the the crap that has been the fad to eat for the last hundred years. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Barry. I'll talk to you guys next time. I always find it interesting that people will say, but, you know, what about pregnancy? Um, and it's, it's reasonable that we would ask because, well, you just don't know if you don't know, right? But when you if you just kind of pull back and think about it a little bit here, what did people eat? Before the dawn of agriculture. And we ate a very ketogenic diet for most of the human race. I'm not going to say all. If you lived in a part of the world of the tropics that was heavily 
you know, infused with year-round wild fruit, you probably ate a lot of it. If you didn't live there, you lived on a protein and fat-based diet because you had to. And all I got to do to prove it to you is put you somewhere in a temperate climate where you don't have access to agricultural products. And and really quickly, you're going to figure out that you're going to need to kill some. So humanity lived on this diet primarily, not exclusively, but primarily for the majority of time we've been on the planet. And now we can't have babies if we live on it. That doesn't make any sense. We wouldn't be here. Just saying. All right, next up, Sean Mills with a couple battery questions. Hey, everyone out there in TSP land. I've got a couple quick questions for you today. First one, addressed to Steve Mills. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but in any case, Steve, what do you think the possibility for widespread grid-scale solar storage using kinetic energy? Uh, I think we're missing some portions of that sentence, but you get the point. Uh, see link below for a company that's doing this. Will it catch on? The link is to amberkinetics.com. It's basically a two-ton flywheel that spins at thousands of RPM inside a vacuum chamber. Uh, it is also suspended by magnets. So essentially the idea is suspended by magnets in a vacuum chamber. There's no friction. So it can spin essentially until you need the spinning motion to power a generator. Um, thanks, Nate. So, Nate, yeah, mechanical batteries are, are actually in use right now. I love the idea of, of the flywheel and the vacuum that can then turn a generator when needed. I'm not sure what the um, scalability is. The nice thing is, is this would use mostly um, recyclable parts. Uh, so that's nice. And, um, you know, if you had a problem, you could refurbish these pretty easily and um and and then get them back into place and you know they're going to last a heck of a lot longer than any sort of battery um uh you know in, at least using the the current chemical batteries that we have uh you know another example of a mechanical battery would be pumping water up to a reservoir uh at the top of a mountain and then using the falling water uh to run a uh hydro generator so uh, the more of things like this that actually work and can be implemented with the current grid, the faster the transition away from fossil fuels will happen. You know, so the question just becomes, okay, how much does it cost for this thing and how much um, can it output over its usable life? Um, and, and then how much does that add to the cost of generation? So for example, if we said that solar can generate electricity at two cents per kilowatt and a uh, natural gas power plant can generate it at five cents per kilowatt, then in order for the solar with the mechanical battery to really be useful for us, we would need that over its life to be able to take the solar generation, store it, and then put it back on the grid for less than three cents per kilowatt over its life, right? And so the math is pretty simple. The problem is, is that most of the current technologies for um, 
for, for kind of transferring the generation, which happens at one part of the day, to the demand, which happens at a different part of the day, does not meet those requirements. So if you take the cost of generation and the cost of storage and, and to put it back on the grid, add those together, it's in most scenarios higher than the cost of just burning natural gas or, or uh, nuclear uh, you know, using nuclear heat to generate electricity by, you know, with the steam process. So that's kind of the issue. And so I, I, I think the more ideas people come up with, um, you know, the faster we're going to get to a place where we are using less um, renewable or, or more renewable energy and less fossil fuel. And I'm not against fossil fuel by any means. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm for generating electricity at the cheapest rates possible and generation, you know, uh, wind and solar is so far ahead of everything else. It's not funny. The problem again is just matching the demand to the generation curve. One of the things that's going to be interesting as we move forward, uh, you know, in the, in the quote unquote new normal, uh, is people working from home, how that changes the demand curve. And how there's a potential to utilize more people working from home where they can potentially do more things during the times of the day when, um, you know, solar and wind is working and less things when it's not. So it, it, anyways, it, you know, just an interesting thought. I love the idea of uh, mechanical batteries, but, you know, they're not ready for prime time quite yet. Uh, next question is, hey, Jack, I got a question for Sean Mills, a.k.a. the Senior Vice President of Sales, about rechargeable batteries and modern flashlights. My primary flashlight is a Streamlight ProTac that takes a CR123. My backup is a ProTac that takes a CR123 or AA. Of course, if I ask Streamlight, can you use a rechargeable battery in them, they'll tell you only use recommended Streamlight batteries. Are there any types of flashlights or bulbs that would have an issue running off of rechargeable batteries. I have a feeling the answer is no, but I really don't like letting the smoke out of a $40 flashlight. Thanks, the technician. Uh, so, hey, in our Tennessee community, um, we always troll each other even when we're sending in expert counsel questions. So thanks for that. So here, the short answer is no. As long as you're using the correct battery in the device, there's nothing special about the electrons and Streamlight batteries versus any other batteries. As a matter of fact... Um, what the Streamlight website says right now today is Streamlight recommends the use of Streamlight, comma, Panasonic, Sanyo, or Energizer, CR123A, or Duracell123 with its non-rechargeable lithium battery projects for uh, products. For TLR3 and TLR4 series, Streamlight recommends the use of Panasonic, Sanyo, Duracell, or Energizer size CR2. Use of other batteries or mixing of new and used or different brand batteries may present a risk of leakage, fire, explosion, and serious personal injury. Do not recharge, misuse, short circuit, improperly store or discard, disassemble, or heat above 212 degrees. Uh, so basically all it's saying here, you know, Streamlight has already come off of only use our stuff and said, hey, here's different manufacturers that we you know, are, say will work with our uh, lights. If you use them properly and the light doesn't work uh, or you let the magic smoke out, they will replace it. Also, if the battery itself causes an issue, all of your major battery uh, manufacturers have a warranty on their products that state, if our battery, when used correctly, damages your device, we will replace the device at our cost. So 
so no, there's nothing special about those electrons. You can use whatever battery matches the profile of demand, right, for the device. And if you use it properly, uh, the device fails, um, Streamlight will replace it. And if it's caused, if the failure is caused by the battery itself, uh, then the battery manufacturer will replace it. So I think you're good to go there. Thanks for the question, uh, Tactical. All right, next, uh, we haven't heard from Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, for a while. He's got some thoughts here on what to be doing with bees in January, uh, bees in general, bees for new people, all kinds of stuff, bees, bees, bees. And we can use some questions for Michael Jordan, folks. It's not that he pikes out and doesn't get his answers done. We don't get a ton of questions for him, at least we haven't recently. So if you have got questions on bees, honey, uses for honey, Mead making, which is kind of the highest and bestest use for honey, in my opinion, or anything like that. Send them on in to jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC expert in the subject line. And remember, you can do that for all the experts. And if you're not sure who all our experts are and what they can help you with, go over to thesurvivalpodcast.com, click on the About tab, and select Meet the Expert Council. And you can see all of them there with their smiling faces and all the cool stuff they can tell you about. Hello to the Survival Podcast Network. From the goose to the ganders, from the me to the we, and still face-to-face, this is Michael Jordan with AB Friendly Company. Hoping your year, well, is your year. I'm taking your questions on bees. What's cool with me, and the big one, apiary management. So this year has a start, and many of us are deep into all kinds of jazz. We're getting out of the jazz. or moving to a different type of jazz. Beekeeping? Well, it's the time of January to read up on those federal, state, county, city, hell, some of those HOA and land zone laws. Make sure you're not hurting your neighbor and helping your fellow man, as always. I mean, what can you do when it comes to hurting bees, hurting people with bees, or just keeping bees? For a new beekeeper, I'm asked why I have never made a book. Well, everything big in beekeeping has been in a book. And if anything comes out, well, there are so many books, blogs, videos, programs, teachers, educational places, trips, seminars, mentors. Uh oh, man, it's, it's just better to use what's out there. Show you how to use it and explain it so you can use it better. Or show you different ways on that subject to use it. There is no right or wrong way in beekeeping. It's only how you apply it. Commercial beekeeping is different than a backyard beekeeper. So there are many things out there that I want you to think about when that happens. Some of the books for reading in January. For the beginning beekeeper, I like the Stories Guide to Beekeeping, Honeybees, by Malcolm T. Sanford and Richard E. Bonney. It is the most referred book for education in the United States. It covers all the practical aspects. It covers all the other books. And it's it's basically the beginning apprentice beekeeping book. Please do not read the ABC XYZ from A.E. Root because it's a great book for a fifth year beekeeper, not for a beginning beekeeper. Now, when I'm giving reference from books, I'm not giving out the Bible. I do not want you to stop reading books and beekeeping of any kind. From the sacred bee to beekeeping for with all, beekeeping for dummies, and just me, the dummy beekeeper. Please, Do not stop reading. Those are just some references that I'm giving right now. So if you have bees and have had them from for a while to almost four years, try reading the Practical Guide in New Zealand Beekeeping. 
Now, it's just a really neutral book, a commercial beekeeping in New Zealand. That's why I'm telling you, it doesn't matter where you read your books, keep reading. Keep reading vlogs and watching videos. January is a good time for education, checking on your laws, upping your memory, making account of everything that's going on. And when I say making account, for those of you who have bees and are looking to move into commercial beekeeping, well, with 50 beehives, I'm your boy blue. I have three levels right now for the M3911 system of commercial beekeeping program on how to make three to $500 per hive per year on 50 hives. Now, I'm also giving my $90 for 120 minutes apiary operation as always. So you can look and sell bees, honey, or other products or whatever you're doing for your operation and you have questions. So I can help you with getting information that you might need for your operation. It's also time to take in that inventory. What do we owe? What do we need? What can we do without? <laughs> and gosh, what do we got to repair? We all have things. But really, if you're not using it or geared up on reading it, you should probably get rid of it. Now, if you have it, what's it worth? What's your expense sheet look like for the year? For losses and depreciation value of your equipment. And let's see what it costs to repair, replace, or even just get the equipment needed to keep going. This is the time to take note to see what money we're going to put into this operation. And I've told you, it's a $300 average cost with bees. And a list of equipment tools the cost. This is not a cheap hobby. and does take your attention to small commercial operation because you want to know where your money goes and now's a good place to figure out where it goes. Hey, now you have a plan on your operation, expense for the year, what we're going to read, what we're going to work on. This will give us a little bit of time in January to do some things. Because in Florida... Like my friend Tim Huffington, he's already getting ready to make splits because drones are already starting to be appearing. And you already have the commercial operation going on in California strong right now of bees being dropped off and flipped out. So I'm just letting you know there are things to do in January in all aspects. Look for your region, your climate, also the season and the year that you're working with your bees. Make sure to ask questions, because there are no dumb questions. It's only the stupid answer you get from the guy you ask. And always, I just want you to know, and I mean really, <laughs> I just want to say thank you to all of you. And I mean that. I've had a lot of fun here on the Survival Podcast Network. I've had great times at Jack's Place. And I've had super exotic experiences with some of you at your homes and farms. So thank you. And remember, you matter. And I'm here to help because one day I'm going to need help too. Next up, I've got a question for Tim Toolman Cook on property management from a standpoint of being on a retainer. Let's hear what Tim has to say, and then I'll give you just a real quickie on how I've always had retainers work as the buyer rather than the seller and why I've always been okay with them that way and why that might apply here. Or maybe not. Let's see what Tim has to say first. Hey, guys. Toolman Tim back here from ToolmanTim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council. This week's question comes from Jeremiah in Montana. 
says, Jack or Tim, how do you go about pricing recurring or retainer-based services? I'm a handyman. I've been approached now by two different rental property owners to manage the maintenance on their properties. I would be the one taking maintenance calls and either responding personally or by getting the right tradesperson or contractor in to fix the issues. I'm having a hard time figuring out pricing that is fair to be that person on call. So options I've considered so far are a flat fee per month, which could include a certain number of work hours, a per call charge, or just an hourly rate and go with it. I would appreciate your thoughts on this. So Jeremiah, thanks for the question. It's awesome to hear that you're doing good and building a cool business. This is, this is great. So there's a few ways, a number of ways to approach this, but I would start by asking just a few questions. Are these single occupant properties? Are they just a house that has a single tenant living in them? Or are they multiple units with many different tenants that you'll be dealing with? What's the age of the properties? Newer properties in general require less maintenance than older properties for obvious reasons. What are the current tenants like? Ask the property owners, what are their experiences like with them? If they don't have any stories to tell you, that's a good thing, because the best tenants are the ones you never have to think about. I've had a couple of different tenants in different properties that I look after that have made me rethink my occupational choices. So all of these are things that not everyone thinks about when building a contract for property management services, because you'll never regret charging a little too much. But when you're making your third service call after midnight for a furnace making funny noises, you're certainly going to regret just charging an hourly rate. So that being said, I can share with you what has worked for me so far. I'm not going to list specific prices simply because they can vary so much from one geographical location to another, but I'll share the principles with you that you can use to come up with a price for yourself. So I would start with a flat rate to ju for just being on call. So if you're taking all the calls all the time, that has the potential to be a huge drain on your time. And more than that, a drain on your schedule and your ability to do anything for yourself. It can limit your ability to go out of town even for an afternoon and certainly away for vacation. So if this is what you're doing, start with a flat rate to just be available. Just because the phone isn't ringing doesn't mean it doesn't affect your availability. Make sure it's worth your time. When I took on my first cleaning contract, I underbid it significantly and had to be around every single Saturday to do that cleaning. I learned that lesson. I seriously regretted it every Saturday I went in there to clean. So just make sure it's worth your time to be available. So that covers the idea of just being available. Now what to do when the phone rings? If it's something that you can't handle and you have to set up another professional, do you need to be there to let them in or supervise? Or can you just call them and let give them the go-ahead to go and do the work? If that's the case, I would have a flat rate for just facilitating something like that, because it'll almost invariably take you longer than you think. You might need to call four different plumbers before one will even answer their phone. You might play phone tag back and forth before getting a hold of someone. But then other times it can be as simple as calling your preferred electrician, having them drop over and fix something. For that sort of thing, a flat rate works. Depending on what your desired hourly wage is, I would say an hour minimum is a good starting place for just answering the phone and facilitating a service. Now, the other situation is, what about the calls that are something that you can handle? Something you actually need to load up the truck and go over and fix it yourself. What I found for me is a three-hour minimum is a really good idea. So it's kind of like a flat rate with some flexibility. So if it's simply a leaking faucet that needs a new washer and you're done in an hour, including travel, great. You've made your three-hour minimum. But if you go over the three hours, you can just start charging your regular hourly rate at that point. 
Most service calls aren't emergencies and can be fit in around other jobs, but there'll be occasional ones that require you to drop everything and run there immediately. It's up to you if you want to charge a premium for that sort of thing or just go with a flat rate. I tend to just use my uh, flat three-hour rate for those things because it is balanced out in my favor in the long run really well. Make sure the contract is for a specific time or a specific time frame as well. Start with no more than a year, and after that year, you'll have a much better idea of the time and money involved, and you can change things up a bit. Or you can always contract it, contract in a yearly percentage increase as well, because nothing ever goes down in price, and if it's a yearly, manageable increases, most property owners will understand that. There's so many variables dealing with setting up recurring income, But when you can do it and do it successfully, it's one of the biggest ways to take a lot of the stress and anxiety out of being your own boss. Keep it up. I can't wait to hear what you've decided, what you're going to do, the great things you're heading with your business. Please get back to me. Let me know. All right, guys. So that's it for this question. If you got a minute, I've started um, mirroring my videos over on Odyssey. So check out my Odyssey channel at All Seasons Maine. Plus, every single week, there's an exclusive video there that's not on the YouTube channel. And go to toolmantim.co if you're looking at building a handyman or service-based business and just need some encouragement or, or advice on where to start. And guys, I'm not exactly sure where this um, segment will fall in in the year, but right now it's just before Christmas, heading into New Year's. But I just want to let you guys know, without our incredible TSP community, I wouldn't have gotten nearly as far as I have this year with all this content creation that I decided to do. So thanks, guys, for all the incredible support. Thanks for the incredible questions. Keep them coming. I cannot wait to hear about the great things you are going to do in 2021 because you can. You just have to do it. And finally, I want to say thanks to Jack and Nicole for all their encouragement and support in 2020. They've given me the opportunity to do great things, and for that, I am incredibly grateful, and thank you guys. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great 2021. So here's the type of retainer that that I've engaged in as a customer. When I worked with Neil Franklin, uh, we were managing a, a multitude of corporations, and we had need for some level of legal service almost monthly. It was almost never that we would go a full month without needing to talk to our attorney. It was a gentleman named Jeff. He was a very, very good attorney. And uh, long book of business, that type of thing. Busy, significant-sized law firm uh, in in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And our retainer worked like this. We paid him a given amount of money a month. And no matter what, he got that money. It was his money. And at the end of that next month, we paid him for the next month. However, as we used services during the month, and different services had different hourly rates, Okay, something that a paralegal could take care of looking over for you was different than something you needed Jeff's personal attention for or one of his partner's personal attention for. But whatever it was, build against the retainer. So if we were paying $300 an hour for something and we had a retainer, it billed against that retainer until the retainer was gone. And then we paid anything that we used kind of a la carte services beyond that with regular invoicing. In return, this is what we got. He was our attorney. And that law firm 
picked up the phone and said, oh, it's somebody from Franklin Spirico or it's somebody from Syrian or it's somebody from Data Workforce, etc. Oh, they're a retained customer right through. And we got immediate responses to things. And if it was something that couldn't be done super, super quick, we would get a phone call back within an hour or less from either Jeff or one of his partners. And they would go over the issue with us. And that almost never was billed for against the retainer or anything. It was just like that's just part of the deal, right? Like we can talk to you. You're a customer. And then they would figure out, like, okay, you think this is an emergency. Here's, you're right. This piece is. We'll take care of this. And then this can be done in kind of a regular time frame. And the fact that we knew that we had that level of service available to us was totally worth the retainer. And the fact that we generally spent most of it made it totally palatable. What protected Jeff's firm was, if we needed a lot more that month done, well... You know, we paid it, and you know, as as a service like anybody else would. So he couldn't get really behind, and you so you might look at that structure uh, as as a way to do things. With that, let's go ahead. I've got another one here. This one on backpacking kids, not backpacking with kids. Kid goes in the backpack on the back for Jessica Mills. Jessica, take it away. Hey y'all, Jessica Dixie Mills here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land and today I'm here to answer a question from Ray. Ray asks, what's the best pack for hiking with a toddler? Details, my two-year-old son goes everywhere I go and I need options for when his tiny legs get tired. I'm a forester for a commercial timber management company so I spend a significant amount of time in the woods each week, often traversing difficult terrain. I also need full use of both hands to do my job and I thought that one of the child packs would work. I saw a couple pack options for kids, but I have no idea what I'm really looking for. I imagine your hiker network includes people that hike with kids. I know the trail and the trailless woods are a different animal too, so I'm not looking for definitive answers, just suggestions from people with more experience than myself. I understand that having a toddler on your back sounds crazy and impractical, but having him with me is my only option, and I'm trying to make the best of it for the both of us. Him being secure but comfortable is obviously the main consideration, but I still need to be able to get through the woods easily and last all day with him on my back. Any insight you or your network could share would be greatly appreciated. Thanks in advance for your time and thoughtful consideration. Also, if there are any other details that would help define your answer, just let me know. Thanks, Dixie, and thanks, Jack. Well, thank you, Ray, for not only the question, but for also obviously being an awesome dad. And I don't know your situation, uh, but I think the fact that you're willing to research and try to find a way to make both of you as comfortable as possible is just awesome. And I think when you look back on all of this, you're going to make some priceless memories with your son. So as you seem to already know, I don't have personal experience that I can share with you as far as hiking with young children goes because I haven't been fortunate enough to have any of my own yet but you're right I do have people in my network that have experience with this in fact if you haven't heard of Ellie on the AT and her story and the story of, of her parents also Rebecca and Derek they are awesome people so if you just do a quick google search of Ellie on the AT I'm sure it'll pull up an article or several with their story, but they through hiked the Appalachian Trail with Ellie in 2017, and I believe she was 11 months old when they first started, and then they went on the six to seven month journey or so. And 
So Rebecca carried Ellie on her back for six to seven months, 2,200 miles along the East Coast. And I reached out to her personally and sent her your question. And she said that after experimenting with several different packs, they landed on the Deuter Kid Comfort Pack. And, and they just said for that age group, that's what worked best for them. And of course, that might not be a home run for you, but it's a good place to start anyway. And I also will recommend checking out the Homemade Wanderlust Backpacking Forum group on Facebook. We've got over 40,000 members on there. So if you've got a Facebook, then you can just go request to join the group. Um, we've got a couple of questions you got to answer just to make sure you're not a robot or, you know, trying to do anything crazy on there. Uh, but there are a lot of members in there with just all sorts of experience. So I'm sure somebody in there has backpacked, you know, with their children too. So if you just want several different opinions, that might be a place to put some feelers out. And I'll include a link to Ellie's, well, her family's Instagram page is the Dirtbag Baby. And then they've got a YouTube channel too, just in case, you know, you might find something else helpful on there. You might just, you know, enjoy following their journeys. They've done some biking trips. And I mean, Ellie's been pretty much potty trained and just raised outside. So I think you could probably relate a lot to what they're doing and, and how they're raising Ellie. And if anybody else is interested, then you can check that out too. But if you've got any other questions uh, for Ellie and her family, I, I bet if you reach out to them on social media, they'd be happy to answer your questions, but also feel free to come back here to the TSP and, and send your questions to Jack and I'll come back on the show and answer them again. And if any of the rest of y'all have questions about backpacking or, you know, quitting your engineering job to go on a long journey through the woods that kind of never ends, then uh, send Jack your questions and I'll be happy to answer them. Right now I'm standing in the middle of Dalton, Georgia, outside of uh, super eight that I'm taking a break at before I finish my Penhody trail through hike. So anyway, thanks for the question again, Ray. And I hope everybody has a great rest of the week and weekend and happy new year. Great stuff. So next up, I've been getting a lot of questions lately about companion planting. What do I plant with? How do I find a companion plant for type of thing? And, um, this gives me a chance to let you guys know about, and it's really not a gardening topic. It's more of a farming topic, but uh, it does fit in with this question about companion uh, planting. I recently came across a guy, and I don't know how. I've been in the world of permaculture, regenerative agriculture, regenerative farming, etc., for so long now, over a decade, and consumed as much material as I could and not found this guy. And his name is Dale Stricklers. And I found a four-part presentation by this guy about regenerative farming and using cover crops and soil management that blew me away. So I created an Odyssey channel, and I'm going to uh, have a link to that channel in the show notes today, and it will go out in the Daily Mail as well. Um, but one of the big takeaways I got from him, and I never really thought, I mean, I've known this, but I, I've never, I guess, really meditated on it one, as to how it pertains to things like planting perennials in your gardens and what have you. But when it comes to building organic matter in your soil, if you don't have a ruminant, a cow, a pig, uh, let's say, uh, and a pig's not a ruminant, a cow, a goat, something like that, consuming 
and eating the biomass and then dropping it on the ground out the back end. If you don't have that, then that huge biomass above the soil might make some good mulch, but it does very little to actually increase the organic matter in the soil. You will get from a plant that's grown in soil as a cover crop about 85% of the organic matter that's added to the soil will occur beneath the soil from the roots that are left behind, the exudates from the, exudates from the roots, and the interaction with and building of other soil microorganisms with that root system. And when you chop that and drop it as mulch, a very small amount of it actually makes its organic matter into the soil because the only thing that can make the organic matter really incorporate into the soil is microbes, and microbes and UV light do not play nicely together. You need warm, right? You need moist, and you need oxygen. So when you look at the top of your mulch, you got hot, not warm. You got dry. You got lots of oxygen, but you also got lots of UV. And how that relates to companion planting is roots in soil make soil more fertile. So I think that we need to stop worrying like, okay, so we should put peas with carrots and dill, but we shouldn't put onions because they don't like peas. Or I just think we need to kind of pull back from that. And we just need to, first and foremost, do not monocrop. Even small scale. So if you want a bed that's primarily a pepper bed, I don't have a problem with that if other things are in it. So even if we do something that's a dedicated bed from a production standpoint. So let's say we've got enough space and we use dedicated beds because it makes our soil management, our picking, our harvesting, our bed man, you know, like when we're going to cover crop a bed, et cetera. Maybe some stay a little longer than others. It makes it all easier. So we want to primarily grow peppers in this bed, tomatoes in this bed, and maybe we want to rotate them next year or whatever. Okay, fine. There just should be other things planted, herbs. I mean, I'm a believer in garlic everywhere. What I do with garlic is if I've grown garlic or I buy garlic, Inevitably, you'll get about 50 to 80% of the cloves are nice, big, plump garlic cloves that are easy to peel and chop up and use in your cooking. And then you get those little fiddly ones. Well, I stick them in my aquaponics and hydroponic systems and grow them like chives, but I also stick them in my garden like crazy. And one of the ways I really kick-start them, this is a little, little Jack Seeker, guys, I stick them in one of my ebb and flow beds for like a day or two. And a little green shoot comes up, and the roots just blow out of that thing like you wouldn't believe. And then you throw that in the soil. And that garlic has a, you know, a pest-repellent component to it and what have you. But I do this with just about anything. My view is, let's say you have a garden, and you've planted your, your, your vegetables, and you put some space between them, because space does help with vegetables, right? We don't want to like densely plant our vegetables too densely, Because they do need space to kind of stretch out and stretch their their, 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 their their wings, so to speak. And they also, you know, they if we're doing lettuce and we plant all our lettuce really, really close to each other, all of it needs the same amount of light, the same amount of airspace, the same nutrient profile from the soil, the same microbes. So it's competing with each other. If we spread it out, less so. But in the space in between, if we plant plants that can handle being a little bit shaded, and are a little bit lower than the primary vegetables that we're growing, flowers, herbs, 
Just plant anything or everything that you like. There's so many things that we can grow. And don't be afraid of perennials. If I put a perennial in there, it'll be there for a long time. Yeah, that's the point. You can always cut it back. You can always chop part of it out. I grow comfrey right in my garden with my vegetables. Grow cover crops. And when you grow cover crops, people are like, well, what do I do for a cover crop? What do you Just look at what will grow at the time you want it to grow. Okay? And it's often great if it's something that will also kind of die on its own at the time you want it to die. So for a winter cover crop, we want to plant something going into winter, not in winter, so that it can establish itself and survive the winter temperatures before we get to winter. And we want it when it warms up to summer kill. Even if it's something that is going to be, you know, you're going to roll it flat, you're going to chop and drop, whatever, a lot of stuff will grow back when you do that to it. So having things that for your climate will reliably summer and winter kill is a great way to have that, or go dormant if it's a perennial, or plant it and control it in such a way that it doesn't matter that it's still there. But with your cover crops, mostly with cover crops, you're doing annuals. So we know if we do something with buckwheat, and cowpea in our summer, toward the end of our crops in summer, and they, they grow vigorously in the heat, and as we go into fall and it hits the first frost, we know it's dead. But we know it left all the roots behind. And I'm not saying do that, I'm just saying like that's a way to think about it. But when it comes to generalized companion planting, just mix stuff up. Don't Don't think it has to be complicated. Don't think you need to get down with a piece of paper and gild everything out. And that there's value in that, especially for, well, this bed has enough space to comfortably grow 12 pepper plants. And if you want to figure out you're going to do four of one, four of another, and four of the third, and have you know three varieties in there and where they're going to go, and you want to do that, fine. If that helps you plan out plant, you know, starting plants or buying plants or buying seeds, great. But then there's going to be space in there. You know, the, depending on your maybe sweet alyssum, if you're a little further north than I am. If you're down here like marigolds. Marigolds love sun. They can handle our Texas sun, but they, they're not going to get shaded out by a pepper plant completely. And they grow low compared to a tall pepper plant. So marigolds, they're, they're pest repellent, right? If you have the space for a, a, a larger perennial, blue salvia sage it is an incredible plant for bringing bees and pollinators in. And it's incredibly hardy. About the only thing that will kill it is too much shade. As long as it doesn't get choked out too much shade, it'll grow like crazy. Um, hollyhock is another great plant. Um, yarrow. You'll be a little careful. It can get a little weedy or what have you. It's a perennial, um, and it puts out a lot of seed, but it really isn't a problem unless you let it become one. Um, incredible at bringing in just tons of critters. If you have, like, trellises and arbors, you can plant things like trumpet vine on them to bring in uh, wasps and, 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 and uh, you know, pollinators and hummingbirds and what have you. Don't think this has to be complicated. Don't think there's some special formula. I think we've gotten a little bit out of hand with the term guilds in permaculture where we think that everything must be designed. How does nature do it? How do the best people in the world do it? Look at Sepp Holzer, probably the, I'd say the most diverse plantings that are intentional are probably at the Kermaterhof where Sepp Holzer, uh, you know, 
practices his trade. He just throws everything everywhere, and where it grows, that's where it wants to be. So don't overthink this one, guys. And I'm not putting down anybody asked the question. I'm just saying this is the reality. It's easier than you think it is. And just if you have something tall and you don't want it out-competed in space, plant something that grows in the understory. If you have something that grows in the understory but can't a little shade, plant something tall. Think more about where you put the thing based on its structure than what it is. Because the more we get, the better. And if something starts to grow a little too much, you can always cut it. And then you're going to leave roots behind. And that's going to build your organic matter and the top creates mulch. Anyway, check out this. I, I, I created an Odyssey channel, Dale Strickler. Uh, this dude, I, again, I just don't know how. I just don't know how I've never found this guy before. Because he is amazing, and he really is one of the heroes of modern regenerative agriculture. So that'll be in the show notes for you today as well. With that, let's go ahead and uh, remind you guys you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z-T-S-P-A-Z.com. If you go there, you help support us no matter what you buy as long as you start your online shopping there. Uh, today's uh, item of the day. Uh, today's item of the day is one of my favorite things to snack on. Uh, snack item of the day. Uh, Chomps grass-fed black pepper venison sticks. Uh, Chomps actually makes a, a large variety of uh, meat sticks. And they're all great, and they're all wonderful, and they're all either you know like grass-fed beef or uh, grass-farm venison and, and, and what have you. The reason I like the black pepper venison ones is, well, first and foremost, it's black pepper and venison. And if you put black pepper and deer meat in front of me, I'm going to eat it just, just flat out. But number two, of all of the ones that they have, it has got the best profile for those of us that are living the keto lifestyle And it is all grass-fed. 100% everything that they make is grass-fed. Uh, it is fantastic. And uh, if you give these things a try, you're really going to like them. They're like, it's like if a Slim Jim didn't taste nasty. I mean, that, <laughs> that's the way I can describe it. Uh, they're not cheap, uh, but I wouldn't call them real expensive. It comes out to about a buck fifty, buck seventy a piece uh, on, on the on the price point, I guess, somewhere in that range. Um, and To have something like that, where when you want something, the big thing that I have to do is prevent myself from eating them all right away when I get some in. But having them there, and when I know, like, if I don't do something, I'm going to do something I shouldn't. Being able to go grab one of those and and enjoy that, you know, sates that, uh, that craving. And if you give them a try, I think you'll agree with me. Again, they're Chomps, T-H-O-M-P-S, grass-fed black pepper venison sticks, and if you... Uh, check out the item of the day today, post about them. You can find all the other varieties that they make as well. With that, let's wrap things up with our song of the day. And uh, like I said, I'm going to come back a little bit toward our quote of the day with this one, even though when I tell you what it is, if you know the song, you might not make any kind of connection with it, at least at first. This is by Clinton Black, and it's called State of Mind. And... This It's an interesting song for me because what this song is really about is how a song can take you back to a place in time and change your state of mind. It reminds you of a past moment. Now, what's interesting, when this song came out in 1993, I had just gotten out of the Army. I'd moved to Texas. I spent an awful lot of time in country bars. And this song was from 93 to about 96. This song was big. If you went to a bar 
that played country music, some point during the night you're probably going to hear this song. And it made you think about all those songs from the past and where you were and you know being a kid in high school and stuff like that is what it made me think about back then. Now it makes me think about it. right? It takes me back to the state of mind of being that young guy, 21, 22, 23-year-old guy, hanging out in bars, making new friends. I just changed my entire life and moved here to Texas, building my career, being broke but not being of a broke mindset and building that career up from the ground up, making things happen, meeting people, uh, dating girls, chasing girls, all of it, man. It brings that all that all back, and it's a good, fond memory. But you know what? I don't want any of it. I don't want anything to do with that life. I'm glad I lived it. It's my past. I'm still that person, but I'm everything that's happened to me since. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a podcaster. I'm a guy that left corporate America that at the time I was working so hard to get into. I'm all those things plus what I was at that time. And I don't want to go back and be that person without the rest of me again. I don't have any glory days I want to relive. My glory days are now because I'm doing what I love. But those are great memories. There is something I'd like to go back to, though. The normalcy. The normalcy, and not just the stupid bullshit that the government's done with COVID, either. The normalcy of the 1990s. The fact that if, um, if someone said to you, my proper pronoun is Z, and you told them to go screw, everybody else thought that made sense. They thought the person that didn't know what they were had a mental problem. That if you didn't like something, you just didn't participate in it. You didn't go out to try to destroy people over it. I mean, the 90s weren't the greatest decade, but there, I think there actually is uh, like a CNN or something like that where they do like, you know, decades, you know, where they do like five-part series about the things that happened or ten-part series that happened in that decade. I think CNN's the one they did it all the way back to the 60s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and I think they actually called it the last great decade. In some ways, they may be right. I miss that. That's what I want to go back to. Freaking normalcy. And I don't need everybody to go with me. I just need to be left alone so that I and the people that want to go there can go there and be left alone. Just need space. What does that have to do with insurrection being a sacred right and the most indispensable of duties? When you make it impossible for people to be left alone, You're setting the stage for insurrection. And this is what I was talking about yesterday when I said we have to be better than they are all the time, every time. There's more than one kind of insurrection. Don't think they don't know what they're doing. Don't think you, that they don't know they are pushing for a violent insurrection. Because they know the mentally unstable people will probably act first. And then they can use it, just like they're using this capital shit which was a big nothing burger in the grand scheme of things compared to what happened in 2020 in total. And I know some people died, and I feel bad about that, and that's horrible. But people die every day. Let's not forget one of the people that died was an unarmed woman that was shot by a cop. Let's not forget one of those five. That, that's how that person died. A cop shot a woman holding a flag through a door. 
So it's not like it, it's all the insurrectionists or seditionists or whatever the hell they want to call them, demonstrators, rioters, false. Because there's no need to shoot a woman with a flag through a door. Your life was not in jeopardy. But when people feel that they can't be left alone, you get into a very dangerous place. When people feel that they can't live a normal life anymore, we get into a very dangerous place. And we're getting to a place where we're going to have insurrection. In my mind, let me tell you the peaceful insurrection that we need to have when it comes to this COVID bullshit. Everybody just go back to their life. Everybody. Not one person saying, I'm opening my, do my store on this day so it can be fined a million dollars and attacked. And I've been saying it for a long time. And I think there's, we're going to have to get to a point where people have had enough and they just go back to living. Here's the other side of it. I think they're about to allow it. I think they're about to encourage it. All of a sudden, the entire tone about the way things are supposed to be with COVID is changing. Biden has his 100 days of masking, where most places have masking anyway, and places that don't aren't going to. They aren't going to. DeSantis down in Florida isn't going to magically change his mind because Joe Biden told him to. The way we do things in Texas, we're not going to change what we do. Most stores have mask mandates. They're, they're very seldom enforced when you don't comply with them. And there is no mandate about wearing a mask outdoors, and plenty of people don't and aren't going to, and nobody bothers them. That's not going to change because Joe Biden said so. So that's a meaningless virtue signaling movement from Biden. That's what it is. I know you're upset about it, but it's meaningless. It's not why you're wearing a mask if you're wearing a mask. You're wearing a mask because you've agreed to do so. You've complied. And you've complied with local government and state government if you're doing it right now. Unless you're a federal employee or on federal property. Which I try to spend as little time on federal property as I can. But... The lockdown mayors and governors are saying, you know, we can't really just stay locked down anymore. Just as soon as Trump is gone. Lightfoot up in Chicago, Como in New York, whatever that shitbag's name is with Governor Moonbeam out in California. All of a sudden, oh, you know, we can't really just stay locked down. Yeah, okay. But I think there's a reason for it. It's not just Trump's gone. Maybe they have started to figure out that the insurrection they're going to get isn't the one they've been betting on. They want violent insurrection. What they don't want is the people switching on to the fact that people are governed by the consent of the governed. If people actually figured out that we could just go back to our life and there's nothing they can do about it if we all do it and did it, what would it do to their power going forward? It would drastically weaken it. But we need to be careful. We need to be cautious because the desire for normalcy and a desire to be left alone are very, 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 very strong things. And if we do get to a point where people that just want to be left alone feel that they can't be and people that just want normalcy figure they're never going to get it back unless they take it back, it's a coin flip as to what type of insurrection you get. Nonviolent Gandhi style or totally violent French Revolution style. You just don't know. With that, it's been Jack Spirico. Hoping this song takes you back to a better place in time and helps you change your mind. 
with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Got a big leather suitcase, all I own's inside. Seems I've been walking for days, can't even bomb a ride. Try stepping to a tune with the rhythm of a walking man. Mind drifts like a big balloon. My situation at hand Ain't it funny how a melody Can bring back the memory Take you to another place in time Completely change your state of mind Walking down a lonely highway Feeling alone, thinking back when things went my way. And not the road I'm on. Well, I've been down a time or two, but it never lasts long. I can always make it through on a wing and a prayer and a song. Ain't it funny how a melody can bring back the memory? Take it to another place in time. It can make you right from a wrong It can make you fall in love It can get you singing along Chase the clouds away And make the sun shine above A melody And bring back the memory Take it to another place in time Completely change your state of mind can bring back the memory, take it to another place in time, completely change your state of mind.